on the very idea, a philosophy podcast. Hello, everyone. Uh, I just got a new Kindle with a front light, trying to enjoy reading in the dark when I wake up in the middle of the night. You know, when the demons haunt me. Now, sometimes I often, you know, wake go to bed quite early. I go to bed at 10, 10 o'clock a lot, uh, just shortly after the kids go to sleep. And uh, uh, that sounds nice, but it means that about 1.30 I wake up in the middle of the night and usually I reach for my iPhone. And I browse around on that for a few hours, uh, not for a few hours, for about 45 minutes, but I'm trying to break that bad habit, uh, trying to keep the dopamine up rather than exhausting it. Hmm? But alas, perhaps that's a fool's errand. Uh, perhaps I'm just going to reach for that iPhone anyway now for that Kindle. Anyway, let's get into the game. I'm going to say a quote. The answer uh, is a philosopher's name, a somewhat famous or well-known philosopher's name. And you tell me who said it. I'll give you five seconds. I'll say the quote twice. Here we go. The quote. Life must be understood backward, but it must be lived forward. One more time. Life must be understood backward, but it must be lived forward. So, you know, touches on narrativity a little bit. Eh? Let me count down five, four, three, two, one. This is none other than Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish, the, you know, the nationality, not the food, 18th century precursor to the existentialists. And in this, in this quote, he's talking about, you know, narrativity, the act of making sense of one's life by arranging it as a story so that you may make sense of yourself to yourself. Yeah? Um, but, you know, be careful, people. Looking backwards can lead to rumination, and that's a bad, bad type of archaeology. Just drown it out by the attractions of your iPhone, I say. You know, if that's what you got to do. So many shiny attractions. Of course, you don't want to be uh, one of those cheery types who just relentlessly looks forward. What I'm trying to say is that, uh, well, you can't win people. That's what it is. Uh, where was I? Okay. On to the main of the episode. Last time, we talked about the overwhelming pervasiveness of narrativity. Narrativity, in the words of British philosopher Galen Strassen, is intensely fashionable in a wide variety of disciplines including philosophy, psychology, theology, anthropology, sociology, political theory, literary studies, religious studies, psychotherapy, and even medicine. Narrativity is the idea that humans see our individual lives as a story. That is how we understand ourselves and make sense of the events of our life. Strassen says narrativity includes both a descriptive thesis 
All functional humans see their lives as a narrative and a normative thesis, that it is necessary to see your life as a story if you are to be a complete human being living a well-lived life. Now, Galen Strassen is quite annoyed by this. Uh, as I said, the name of his book is Things That Bother Me. He states that many people, too many people, to ignore it, don't see their life as a story and, you know, so much the better for it. He says that this theory is an imposition on people and it is the cause of a fair bit of stress to those people whose self-understandings don't fit into the narrative structure. And it has caused a lot of pain and wasted opportunity in applied psychology, for example, by trying to fix people's personal problems with a framework which does not apply to them. If a psychologist tries to get his patient to focus on his life story, his background, his personal history, or his future history by centering on developing a narrative, a story, with the end point of achieving certain goals within his or her life, you know, goal-based therapy, that psychologist or therapist is doing a disservice to the patient. But... All this might seem a bit confusing because we are also used to hearing that life is a narrative, that it may even be difficult for one to conceive of what a non-narrative-based life might even look like. So, how specifically does Strassen conceive of non-narrative people? Are they just wantons who mindlessly wander from one event to the next? Well, I suppose some people fit that caricature. And I'm sure we've all known some people who that description wouldn't be the hugest stretch, but there's so much more richer possibilities on offer. Certainly, Strassen isn't a wanton in spite of living a non-narrative life. He's an intelligent philosopher who holds a chair in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Texas. On a side note, you know, he looks a lot like Art Garfunkel. Strassen uses the descriptive concept of being episodic as opposed to diachronic or time-based to shed some light on those who are non-narrative. Episodic versus diachronic. Let's, you know, get into this contrast. How to understand this contrast? Well, diachronic people's stories persist over long periods of time, time-based, whereas episodics do not. They operate more in the short term. Of course, episodics may sometimes connect to certain events in their past, the embarrassment or happiness of a particular event, and relate to those events as happening to themselves. Yeah, of course they can. But it's important to distinguish it from being some type of case of amnesia or, you know, disassociation. But the disposition is to not form a story out of these events, even though those memories exist. Strauss and even wonders if these modes of connection with the past might be cultural, you know, the way we relate to our past stories. He looks at revenge-based cultures. In revenge-based cultures, you need a good long memory because that society demands of you that you need to seek justice by harming the family members of those who have harmed you or your family members. Justice in these societies requires us to do a bit of Hammurabian scorekeeping of who's, who's on your John Wickian hit list. In these societies, we may have a deeper tendency and a greater evolutionary payoff to be diachronic and uh, long-term in memory than those who are free to enjoy a more happy-go-lucky life in good old love 
law-based society. And Strassen does feel episodic. Uh, non-narratives can be, you know, can be actually happier than these narrative people. This this thing that we're pushing, narrativity, might actually make us less happy. Or perhaps this, you know, happiness comes to them more easily. To illustrate this, I like the story Strassen tells about American author John Updike to illustrate his point that the happiness uh, that this episodic disposition can bring. Updike was a writer of the Northeastern American life and was the author of Run, Rabbit, Run. Uh, Updike said, I had the persistent sensation in my life and art that I am just beginning I yearn to describe my life uh, in such regret-free terms. You know, who doesn't? Uh, What Updike describes certainly sounds liberating and refreshing, but this is not to say episodics don't experience stress. It's, It's not that joyful. They may be more stressed in the present moment, but by definition and disposition, they probably experience less stress from events in their relatively distant past. Now, There's a worry here for episodics. Our episodics, you know, non-narratives, who do not seek to weave a thread, connecting them with their distance past. Are they living, you know, a life that is ultimately chilling or empty or deficient in some way? Is it a variety of the unexamined life and thus, you know, not worth living? How much grounded do you need to be in your past? The episodics seem to be no less loving or loyal than anyone else. They just don't feel the need to create a story for themselves out of the past to justify their love. Likewise, people who live their lives grounded in the past by weaving a story out of it to make sense of their today, they might be seen as dragged down by life, you know, these narrative people, haunted or bogged down in personal history or, you know, inauthentically second order, you know, experiencing life through memories rather than just being there. They could be seen as uh, once removed from life events by constantly seeing it through the frame of their past excessive rumination you know was a worry here but there's no reason to cast aspersions on either way of living of either way of being you know narrative or non-narrative though we you know from time to time we may suggest to a friend you know someone who's stressed out or maybe a little too carefree on the other side to try on another pair of shoes another pair of shoes so yeah probably need a different metaphor here but you, you kind of get what i'm saying I have kind of a pet theory that this idea of goals-based narrativity has two cultural sources that have led to its dominance. One is the emergence of the social sciences. Lives as narratives are easier, easier to dissect and study. Social science concerns the study of humans, either in groups or as individuals. In studying humans, you have to study how they understand themselves and lives as stories offer a much more studyable phenomenon than lives as just messy episodes. And there has been quite an industry that has emerged around psychology um, and sociology that seeks to understand humans as ongoing narratives. Life is a mess but must be studied. Social scientists attempt to do the best that they can so they see lives as narratives as it provides an easily analyzable format to make sense of sociological and psychological concepts. But somewhere along the way, the map becomes the territory 
it creeps in. People read articles and learn in university that we need to understand our life as a narrative. So, readers absorb this, that they should understand their life as a narrative because that's what the smart people say. And this solidifies the finding because more and more people try to make sense of their lives through this concept of narrativity. So it becomes self-feeding. So what started as a theory in an attempt to make something messy into something understandable, something neat and tidy and studyable, it, you know, this becomes the actuality. The theory informs the reality rather than the other way around. People start acting more narrative, you know, consciously constructing narratives because they're told that's what they should do. And maybe this is the way that it works for many social science theories or even science when they touch on the study of human behavior. Let's look at uh, evolution on this same angle, uh, especially, well, specifically evolutionarily, evolutionary psychology. You know, who doesn't want to believe in evolution? But the metaphors of evolution focus particularly on self-interest. Why do we cooperate? Well, that's out of self-interest, according to evolution. Hey, that looks like altruism? Holding out the door for someone? Well, actually, it is self-interest based on group selection, say some evolutionists. These type of uh, examples, you know, these are type of examples, uh, but weird things start to happen when you read them. You start reading it as science and as descriptions of animals in nature, not as humans in society. But slowly the idea that everything is done in self-interest slowly starts to creep into your mind. And then that is how you start to view others and your own actions. And then you start to justify something selfish you did by using this quasi-intellectual verbiage. And the next thing you know, people have quasi-evolutionary jargon like alpha male, and beta male floating around. Then they read sperm wars and books like that and float around the ideas of chads and cucks. Sorry, I feel creepy just saying those words and making you hear them. Uh, Now, this is not the fault of evolutionary scientists. The sensible ones say that evolutionary theory needn't determine to a great degree the behavior of people living in societies. But nevertheless, it distorts itself in people's brains uh, that we still can be understood as having the psychology of bipedal apes on the savannah. Some of that understanding is okay, but it really needs to be not taken too far. My other pet theory is that the other root of the dominance of the narrative thesis is from capitalism. It arose with the bourgeoisie bourgeoisie, ethic that has dominated since the emergence of capitalism in the 19th century. It is tied into the general ethos of the Protestant work ethic. Life should not be understood by how you fit inside a heavenly teleology, but what you accomplish in life with your hard work. And a big part of making this type of assessment involves looking back and creating 
a life story, to show your progress. And by showing progress through hard work is how you please the God of the Protestant work ethic framework. Seeing your life as a story will most likely lead to assessing that story as a success or a failure. And in a world obsessed with materialism, that success or failure can most easily be understood in terms of money. You can't motivate masses of people to to participate in perhaps a rigged system unless you relate to them on a fundamental level. That success in this system will determine whether their life story was a worthwhile one. You got to hit them on the moral level. One of the big problems of early capitalism was to motivate people to work more than just covering their basic needs. People preferred their leisure time after necessities were met. They were episodic and cared not to conceive of the ownership of things beyond basic necessities, as this requires long-term planning and thinking. We no longer have this problem because our very notion of our life is tied up with achieving in economic terms, and this has led to great technological advances and material comforts, but it may not have necessarily improved happiness. Okay, so, (laughs) at the pains of starting to sound like Rousseau, I'm going to stop there. Think about it. Uh, Your most natural inclinations to see your life as a narrative or more episodically. Both are okay, okay of course, but, you know, you are as you is. But fret not if you can't cram your your living into a life story. You might not just be disposed to do so. Thank you for listening. On the very idea, a philosophy podcast.